Good morning, fellowship. My name is Rob, and um, if you're new to fellowship, there are two teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd. We have two campuses here in uh, Franklin, South Franklin, uh, Columbia Avenue, just south of downtown. And when I'm here, Lloyd's at Franklin, and when he's here, I'm at Franklin. The Franklin service is a week behind. It's essentially the same service, but a week behind. And that's wonderful for me and Lloyd because we get to write one sermon and preach it twice in a row. And the jokes do get a little better. So if you live on that side of town, you know, you might consider, but no, uh, it is a joy to be here. And if you are new to fellowship, I just want to say one more thing, and that is the way we teach, the the type of, of preaching we do here is called expository teaching. And it just means we take a passage of scripture each week and we teach it and apply it. And we'll go sometimes verse by verse or phrase by phrase, sometimes even word by word. And we've been in this series now for a number of months, the Sermon on the Mount. It's just five chapters of scripture. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're in it the entire school year. We did take a break for uh, the Advent time, and we're back in it. And it's so significant to be in this part of the, the, uh, God's Word, because if you think about it, it's confusing to know what it means to be a Christian in our cultural context right now. And I want to remind us that to be a Christian means you are a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. That is primary. Everything else is secondary. What Jesus says, we believe. What Jesus taught, we obey. What Jesus did, we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. And in these three chapters, he essentially says, let me show you a way of living that, that, that will seem upside down to you as it is upside down to the rest of the world. But it's the path of life. It's not the upward trajectory and and the the path of power that the world would say that you should be pursuing. It is a downward trajectory of humility and service that has resurrection life all in it. And so we've been talking about this key image throughout this Sermon on the Mount series of the iceberg, and we'll put that on the screen because I I just want to keep hammering this image. The idea is this. Most people think religion is really just about what people see on the outside. It's about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And Jesus said, no, no, no. God sees not just your external actions, but he sees what's underneath the waterline of your life, the the thoughts, the emotions, the desires, you know, the intent, the will of your heart. And Jesus is saying true righteousness is the whole thing. And so if you want to think about it this way, is an easy way to think uh, perhaps is religion is what most people focus on up here above the waterline of life. But Jesus is saying, follow me. I want to transform you from the inside out. And so the transformation of Jesus is our heart changes. And yes, that includes our external behavior. But this is primary. This is secondary. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we get this tension of the upside down world, the the world of the heart that expresses then itself into the actions, knowing that every other religion approaches it exactly the opposite. In this particular section of the sermon, Jesus has been applying this image of the iceberg to three religious things in his cultural 
in his cultural day that were kind of the primary pillars of the Jewish religion at that time. The first was almsgiving or giving money to the poor. The second one is prayer. And the third, which we get to today, is fasting. And for each of these, Jesus is saying, listen, there's a wrong way to do that and there's a right way to do it. There's a religious way to do religious things and then there's a way that comes from a different motivation that's life-giving. Uh, Luke already mentioned um, the, the Lord's Prayer at 3 p.m. Um, you know, I, I didn't set my alarm to do that because I was down at Franklin, so I didn't know what Lloyd was going to do. He and I had kind of kicked that idea around, but I didn't know if he was going to do it or what time he was going to do it. And on Sunday afternoon, I was, happened to be on the phone with my parents who live in South Carolina, but they watch every you know, service, particularly in COVID. Like This has kind of been their church in this COVID season. And uh, I was talking to them in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, I heard this, boo, 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 boo. I thought, what is that? And my parents were like, I don't know. Is that on your end? Like, no, no, mom, that's on your end, you know? And, and she realized, oh, it's my Alexa. My Alexa is making this noise. Why is it making this noise? And I said, I don't know. It sounds like an alarm. So she said, why would the Alexa be making an alarm? And then she thought, oh, I said it for three o'clock so I can pray the Lord's Prayer. And I thought to myself, that was like five hours ago. <laughs> so we prayed the Lord's Prayer right there on that phone. Then the next day, excuse me, I was with our elders. We were on a planning retreat on Monday and uh, three o'clock came and it was like a chorus of alarms and bells. You know, everybody's phone is now exactly aligned now. So they all went off the exact same time. And I was like, oh yeah, Lord's Prayer. So I, I asked for an elder to volunteer to lead the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not gonna tell you which guy, but one of the guys raised his hand and I thought, okay, he's not opening his Bible. He must have this. So we all pray and we're all saying it. And um, he totally messed it up. This was one of your elders. I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but he got to the forgiveness part and he left out the forgiveness and he just like jumped to the deliver us from evil part and we were all stumbling and confused and then we laughed for it later, but I said, I will not use your name. I almost did it. I'm so tempted right now, but I told him I will not, so I will keep my word. We got a lot of feedback and people were saying, you know, it was actually just as small as that was. It was really helpful. So I want you to know, Lloyd and I are doing this intentionally. We get to the end of the message, and every week there's a very practical application. And we've got a very practical application today. And some of you are thinking, uh-oh, the text is fasting. He's going to make me fast. Well, I'm not going to make you do anything, first of all. But I think there's an invitation in this text for us. And I'm excited about it. So if you haven't opened your Bible already, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. We just have three verses today. 16, 17, and 18. We'll put it on the screen as well, and let's read God's word. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the living word of God for us today. Now, um, again, in all three of these sections on almsgiving and prayer and now fasting, Jesus has the exact same structure he uses. It's, it's very tight. It's in parallel to each other. I want to diagram it for you just for a minute. He starts off by saying, and when you fast, and then he's going to give a negative example, like do not do this. And then he comes back to almost the exact same phrase, but when you fast, now obviously the, the contrasting word but is very important there. Then, then the, the second parallel part of the structure is he's saying, here's what you are not to do. Do not be 
Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Instead, the contrast is what we are to do. Uh, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And then there is a reward part of this too. He says, they have received their reward. You, your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. So there's a lot of parallelism going on here. It's very easy to see Jesus' message. He's saying, I want you to fast. I'm assuming you're going to fast, but there is a way to do it that I don't want you to engage and there is a different way. And there is a reward from people and there is a reward from God. Now, Let's talk about the cultural context of fasting. In the Old Testament, which, which would have been the context that the men and women of the day that Jesus was living would have had, in the Old Testament, there were two broad categories of fast. There was a public fast and a private fast. The public fast was for all the nation. All the people were called to fast at specific times. The most prominent one was the Day of Atonement. You know, that was the day that's specifically devoted to people focusing on their sin. And it's a day of humility and, and a day where, you know, everybody just fasts and then their sin is atoned for through the sacrifice at the temple. And that was a public fast. There were other public fasts that would happen from time to time. Times of national crisis, of drought, of war, epidemics, uh, uh, death of someone very important, maybe the king, they would call for a public fast. Then there was a private fast. The private fast is exactly what it sounds like. It's personal, it's private. Um, it was never a requirement in the Mosaic law to, to do a private fast. That was not a part of the law, but there are a lot of very positive examples in scripture of it. So it was something certainly, um, you know, was a appropriate way to respond to certain circumstances. We'll talk about what circumstances a little bit later. Here's what I want you to know now. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had made the private fast a, a, a marker or a measure of external righteousness. They had designated, this is on their own, this did not come from God's law. They had designated there'll be two days of the week where you are to fast privately, you know, on your own, but, but we want you to do it. And, you know, one was Monday and one was Thursday. And it kind of became this litmus test or this measure of how devout you are. Now, what happened next is very logical if you think about it. Because they made it an external measure of righteousness and because they all wanted everyone else to know that they were one of the righteous ones, they started like you know, not washing their face and not combing their hair and, and, and not anointing their head with oil, which is what you would normally do uh, just to kind of look presentable. And that was just the cultural way back then. But instead, it would look like they just rolled out of bed and someone would look at them and would say, what's wrong with them? Oh, it's the fasting day. And what, what these people would think is like, oh, look at that guy. You know, he's so devout. He's miserable for the sake of God. <laughs> he's sacrificing himself to fast and give up food. And look how it's affecting his whole body. And if anyone's on God's side, it must be that guy. Jesus was not fooled. And essentially what Jesus is saying in this text is he's saying, for those people who put on a show of fasting, it's not actually about God at all. It's about themselves. They may be fasting from food, but they are feasting on public, public adulation. There, there is this, Jesus was saying, this impressing of people, and the idea is that that's their reward. 
They're getting what they desire. What you seek after, by the way, you will typically get. And in this case, if you're seeking after someone thinking you're spiritual, you can probably make people think that you are spiritual. Now, Jesus offers an alternative. His alternative here in verse 17 and 18 is he's saying, listen, um, when you fast, implying there are times to fast, it's just between you and God. Don't make it a show. He's saying, wash your face, dress like normal. By the way, anoint your oil. What you have with oil is not some idea of some special spiritual thing you're supposed to do. It's just that was the normal thing in the custom to look presentable. So if you normally wear makeup, put your makeup on like normal. If you normally shave, shave. You're not to draw attention to your suffering, so to speak. Once again, Jesus is going to the heart of the matter. It's not so much about the external stuff of whether or not you're fasting. He's just saying, when you fast, make sure it's coming from the right place in your heart. He's saying that's where real righteousness is in the heart. And in doing this, guys, and this is so important for you to see, he is turning their assumptions upside down about who is in and who is out. He's saying the people that you have always thought are the most holy ones, the most righteous ones, may very well not be. And the ones who actually are closest to God may very well be the ones that go unnoticed and overlooked. I wonder when the disciples heard these words if they remembered what Jesus had just spoken about 10 minutes earlier. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two weeks ago, when we talked about prayer, we talked about the idea of what Jesus is doing in all three of these, in the giving and prayer and fasting. He's pushing into the motivation underneath religion. And if you remember, I, I, I I encourage you to think about what, what is your religious practices that you engage in. And, you know, some of us don't want to identify with religion, so to speak. You know, we say, well, I have a relationship with God, not a religion. And, and I think there, there's a lot of good truth in that. But, but you do religious things. You know, you're here this morning or you're watching online. You're a churchgoer. You, you, you give your money. You're a giver. You serve, potentially. You're a server. You pray from time to time. You read your Bible. Those are all religious things, at least from the eyes of the world. So the question is, why do you do them? And so what we talked about two weeks ago and I want to remind us of is if we're honest, our motivations are always a mixed bag, aren't they? Like there, there's some pure motivation in me and there's some very impure motivation in me. And I don't know if I've ever done anything from a wholly altruistic motivation. Usually the motivation of our religion is to feel better about myself or to, to, to look or even feel like a good person, maybe to earn God's approval, maybe to try to, to attain some kind of like um, higher level of, of, of spirituality so you can have more peace in your life or, or to assuage your guilt. All kinds of motivations. Maybe you're here because your wife really wants you to be here or maybe you're here because you just want this for your kids. And we have all these motivations for, for why we do religious things. What's interesting is Jesus does not deconstruct the idea of doing religious things for the sake of a reward. He just redirects the reward. And so what he's saying in this whole section is he's saying, 
Don't do religious things for the sake of the wrong reward. Do them for the sake of the right reward. And what is the right reward? Ultimately, the reward is God himself. It's saying, then your father who sees in secret will reward you. What will that mean? We don't know all that will mean, but what we know for sure is the audience is the father. So here's a way to think about it. A religiously motivated person seeks things from God. A person transformed by Jesus starts to seek God himself. Because what you need, more than your life being easy, more than your, your kids doing good things, you need God. You need intimacy and relationship with your creator. You need to have your soul bear before him and allow him to do his work in you. You need God himself, not the gifts of God. So we get to fasting, and, and all of us, I assume most of us, are thinking, I don't know what to think about fasting. Fasting is kind of weird. Fasting seems Catholic, or fasting seems something. I'm just not familiar with it. And, and I raise my hand and say, you know, I, I am not an expert of fasting. I do fast, but only on occasion and rarely. And so I have learned a ton this week about this. And I want to I ask this question with you this morning. Does fasting have a place in our Christian faith? I heard someone answered already, yes. And so I think my message is done. <laughs> Here's another way to say it. Should it be a significant part of how we follow Jesus and pursue God? If the answer to that is also yes, most of us need to look inward and say, why is it not for me? Um, I, I, this is not about feeling guilty because you don't fast, by the way. Like, I, I, I don't fast much, but I've not felt guilty this week. I'll tell you what I felt is I felt the invitation to something that I'm eager to pursue. And I want you to feel that same. So the question boils down to this if you're a follower of Jesus. Did Jesus fast and did he expect his disciples to fast? And if the answer to those two questions is, is yes, let's do it. Like, let, let's engage it. The answer to both of those questions is yes. Jesus fasted. We know of at least one big time when he fasted. 40 days and 40 nights when he was in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, tells the narrative of Jesus' temptation and his fast in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 2, by the way, I think is one of the most understated verses of the whole Bible. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, yeah. Now the second question, did his disciples fast? Or did he, rather, I think I've said it, did he, does he expect his followers to fast? That's also, yes, but it's nuanced. Because I want to point you to Matthew chapter 9. This is a fascinating passage. I'll put it on the screen or you can turn there just a couple pages over to the right in your Bible. Then the disciples of John came to him, meaning Jesus, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, there you go. The disciples didn't fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. We'll talk more about that a little later because there's something amazing Jesus is pointing to. But here's what I want you to know now. He clearly expected his disciples to fast, just not when he was physically present with them. 
And by the way, that's exactly what they did. In the book of Acts, once Jesus had ascended into heaven, you see them multiple times fasting. So it's very clear that fasting has a place in our Christian faith. Jesus fasted. He expected his followers to fast. My guess is most of you don't practice it regularly. Most of you are probably like me. Maybe many of you never, ever have fasted. And again, you don't need to feel guilty about that. I want to invite you into something this morning. Um, it did occur to me that maybe you're all fasting. You're just putting your makeup on and, and combing your hair like you should, and I just don't know it. But I think that's probably unlikely. American Protestants largely just don't know what to do with this. Um, they, there, there's this some oddness to it. And, and I think I have maybe thought about and, and maybe understood a little bit about why that is. So I want to talk about it. But first, I want to give us the wrong reasons to fast, and then I'll give us the right reasons for fasting. So let me first start with this. Um, the wrong reasons for fasting, and we'll, we'll put them up here on the screen. There, there are at least three. To impress other people, to get things from God, or to check a religious box. Now, the good news is, if most of us aren't fasting, we're not fasting for the wrong reasons. That's the good news, if you follow that logic. I actually don't think the temptation for us to fast for wrong reasons is there like it was for the Jews of the first century. Remember, if they weren't obviously fasting twice a week, they were considered to be backsliders. Like, they were on the out. Now, think about that in our religious context. If there was something that, like, all the good Christians did and you weren't doing it, there would be immense social pressure in Middle Tennessee for you to start doing that thing. Do you, do you follow that? I think we have some examples in our, our day. Maybe even church going is one of them. But... These motives for fasting may not trip us up like they did in the first century, but they do trip up a lot of our motivations for religious things. I think especially number two. I want to talk about number two for just a minute, to get things from God. It's really easy for us to think God is impressed when we're living life right, or, or that God is somehow, um, he loves us more, he, he's more pleased with us, or, or more willing to hear our prayers, or you know, more, more attuned to us when we're living right. Listen, that's not how it works. You, you don't get a good life when you're living a good life. Some of the most spiritually mature people I know have lives that are very difficult. And on the flip side, I know of some very spiritually immature people who have, to, ha, have life easy. God is not manipulated. He, he's neither impressed by our spirituality, nor is he exasperated by our lack of religious works. He just loves you. His every act in relation to you is motivated by love. And you cannot do righteous things to make God love you more, nor can you sin to a certain degree to make God love you less. He just loves you. You know, I, I, I try to explain this to my kids and, and it's hard for them to get it, but then I look at them and I think about me and I get it with them. 
we don't need to do anything, much less fasting, if we think that we're going to earn something from God. It's like, oh, he's on the good list now. Or, you know, now she's someone that I'm going to really listen to her prayers and, and, and her wayward child will come back or her marriage is going to get better because she's whole on into the religion of Christianity. That is not the way it works. Those would be wrong reasons to do anything. Let's talk then about the right reasons, the biblical reasons to fast. This is where the invitation comes in. There are four I want to talk about. I'll spend various amounts of time on each. I want to walk through them one by one. I'm sure there's more than four biblical reasons. The first is to imitate Jesus. This does not need a lot of commentary. I think this one would be enough by itself. Remember, our vocation is followers of Jesus. Jesus fasted. Jesus expected his followers to fast. And that's us. But although this one might be enough by itself, I don't think it speaks to the heart of fasting and why Jesus would want this for us. So let me go to reason number two. To expose our true hunger and thirst and direct them toward God. When Jesus fasted in the wilderness, I think it's interesting that Satan came to tempt him at the end of the 40 days. I used to think that Satan was waiting until Jesus was at his weakest. I am now convinced that the spirit held Satan back until Jesus was at his strongest. Think about the very first temptation Jesus faced. Do you remember what Satan said? You know, Satan was like, I know you're hungry. In fact, if you keep this up, you're going to die. And that would be medically true, you know. This is kind of the dynamic that Jesus was in. And, and so Satan's saying, all you have to do is lose just a little bit of your power and turn any of these hundreds of rocks all around you in this wilderness into bread. And then meet your own need. Wouldn't your Father in heaven want you to live and eat? Do you remember what Jesus said back? He just quoted a, a simple verse from Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point of fasting is to come to know and believe that sentence. Another way to say it is this. Fasting is, is practice in entrusting your needs to God not just your physical needs, but then you learn to entrust all of your needs to God, your deeper needs, your spiritual needs. You start realizing that it's not just bread that sustains me. I'm sustained by God himself and my connection to him and my intimacy with him and on the words that flow through his mouth that are bread and water for my soul. So here's the thing. God created you to need food. Like That's just a medical, physical fact that you actually have a deeper hunger. You have a hunger for meaning and you have a hunger for, for comfort and you have hunger for approval and you have hunger for the satisfaction and all these inner deeper spiritual hungers. Fasting from food helps expose what's beneath the surface. It helps you see all the ways you're trying to satisfy your deeper hunger. Just like you would satisfy your, your physical hunger by grabbing a snack 
when your stomach starts hurting, I mean, that's just as natural in our nature as can possibly be. I'm hungry, I'm gonna, I need to eat. I'm gonna grab something. Same thing happens in, in our brokenness, and our fallenness. We start feeling the hunger pains of spiritual hunger and loneliness and broken dreams and brokenheartedness and fear, and we reach for all these snack foods that can only temporarily ease the discomfort before it worsens the hunger. Denying yourself of food often reveals what's really going on in your heart. I get angry when I fast. And, you know, I used to think, oh, yeah, that's just the hangry. I'm hangry. Um, I started thinking about that. Like, there's probably some medical, chemical things that are going on that kind of does that. But then, but then I started thinking about, oh, I think it's deeper than that, at least for me. Guys, I get angry when I fast because I am so used to having my needs met when I want them met and how I want them met. And not being able to solve my own problem, not being able to control the situation makes me angry. We don't like discomfort. Like, you don't have to apologize for that. You're made as part of your humanness. You don't like discomfort. You don't like emptiness. We don't like lack of any kind. But I'd say this, our particular brand of Christianity in our time, in our place, in our generation has become so self-sufficient, so used to meeting our own needs, the very thought of not doing so seems a little weird. I think that's why many of us don't fast, part of the reason. Maybe, maybe, more than any generation before us, it is physically, mentally, and emotionally easier for us to satisfy our own cravings rather than entrust them to God. We just don't have practice. Jesus would say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, Don't satisfy your own cravings on your own rather than trusting them to, 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 to your Father in heaven. Jesus would say, learn to feel your hunger and your thirst. Start with the physical and let that remind you of the spiritual hunger and thirst. Your physical hunger pains are tangible reminders of your deeper need that only God can fill. So how do you learn to take your truest needs, your deeper spiritual and emotional and relational needs to your heavenly Father? Practice by fasting. Reason number three, invitation number three, to respond to the brokenness in us and around us. This is by far and away the most common reason people have fasted in the Old Testament in particular. You know, the Day of Atonement was focused on sin. And so think about it. You're fasting, you're hungry, you're realizing your need. What kind of need are you realizing? Your need for forgiveness. And you see that animal killed in your place and then you go home and you feast. God's provision for your need. When you are deeply confronted by your own sin, fasting is a biblical way to respond not to try to atone for your sin, but because once again, fasting exposes your need. What is your need when you're confronted by your sin? Forgiveness. So you feel the hunger pains. You say, oh God, I've got a deeper need than even this hunger 
Would you meet my need? Would you forgive my sin? Fasting was the primary way God's people responded to the, not just the brokenness in them, the day of atonement, but the brokenness around them. That's why they fasted when there was famine or war or, or epidemic. The Israelites responded to these things by fasting. Why? In order to enter into mourning and grief that is appropriate for living in a groaning creation and seeking deliverance from God. It keeps us grounded in the fact that this is not our true home. This broken, messed up, disease-filled, power-struggling, angry place is not our home. Let us not get too comfortable in it. Fasting is a way to respond to the brokenness in us and around us and enter in experientially in the spiritual reality. By the way, before I move to the next point, this is what's so amazing about Matthew 9. When, when Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them and then they will fast. Listen, there is no emptiness in Jesus Christ. There is no lack. There is no famine in Jesus Christ. There is no war in Jesus Christ. There is only fullness, no brokenness in Jesus Christ. He calmed storms. He fed people. He cast out demons. He healed diseases, you see. There's no fasting when you're with Jesus Christ, the fullness of creation in the flesh. But right now, until he returns and sets all things right and sits on the throne, the creation is groaning. And so we enter into the groaning of creation and our own internal brokenness through the fast. We will not always fast. On the new earth, there will be only feasting because we will be with Jesus. One more reason, biblical reason to fast, to put ourselves in a posture of dependence, to seek wisdom, guidance, and protection. So many examples in scripture of this happening. I don't have time to read through them all, but, but, but just think about, you know, if a few. Moses fasted on Mount Sinai before he led the people in the wilderness. Esther fasted before she risked her life to go to the king and, and beg for the lives of her people. We already talked about Jesus' fast. It was right before he began his public ministry. In the, the early church, they fasted before they sent out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas fasted before they appointed elders to each church that they planted. Here's the idea. You're not trying to manipulate God to do something, but you're putting yourself in a posture of dependence as you make important decisions and carry out important actions enter into important situations. Think, think of it this way. Fasting puts your body in the condition you want your heart to be in when you make important decisions and carry out important things. You want your heart to be fully dependent on God. No pride, no self-sufficiency, fully dependent on God. And so you're putting your body into that condition in order to get your heart and your body aligned into a unity, which is we are united people. We're not just a heart and a body. We're a person. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right relationship with God, humility, a posture of dependence, for they shall be satisfied. 
So it is appropriate to fast before you make a decision or before you enter into a new adventure or, or, or something that you're worried about that's coming up. There's a, a lawsuit or there's a date or there's something. But it's not to try to get the outcome you want. It's to put yourself in a posture, a state of dependence fully on God, just as Jesus did before he started his ministry. Now, those are four really good biblical reasons to fast. I want to talk briefly about the how of fasting, and then we're going to talk about what we're going to do this week as a body. If you've never fasted or maybe only rarely fasted like me, let let me encourage you to start small. Don't try to take on a 40-day fast or, or anything even remotely like that. The great thing about fasting is it's not about how long you do it. It's about the posture it puts your heart in. Fasting aligns the whole person, body and heart, in a posture of deeper dependence on God. And so for people like us who are used to meeting our own needs whenever and however we want, it usually does not take much of a fast to get our attention. So here's how to do it. Start with just a meal. Maybe if you're accustomed to skipping meals and that's not a big deal for you, maybe do two meals. But, but I would encourage you, don't start with more than, than one or two meals. And if you've never done it before, start with even one. And, and here's, here's all you do. When it comes time to eat, when you would normally eat, use that time instead to pray. That's number one. And by the way, it doesn't have to be an hour-long prayer. 10 minutes. If you're not accustomed to praying for an hour, pray for 10 minutes, even five minutes. Just say, instead of eating right now, I'm going to spend time in intimate conversation with my Father in heaven. And then number two, and this is a little trick I've learned from the times that I've fasted. When you feel the hunger pangs, and you will, use them as a physical reminder of your spiritual hunger. And it's as simple as this. When you feel hungry, you just pray in that moment. God, I need you more than food. Thank you for meeting my need. Amen. That's it. God, I need you more than food. Thank you for meeting my need. Amen. That's how you fast. Now, at the end of each message, Lloyd and I have been saying, what would it look like for us to, to follow Jesus? I mean, literally follow Jesus. Let's do it. Like, let's, let's be followers of Jesus. And so you set your alarm last week for 3 p.m. Lord's Prayer. Let me encourage you to do something this week. Set aside, if you're able, next Friday, this Friday coming, January 29th, as a day of fasting and prayer for our country, our community, our church, and our own hearts. And all that means is choose one or two meals on that day to skip and set your alarm for 12 p.m. on that day and let's pray together. Let's pray together. I think there's something powerful of knowing at 12 o'clock, the body of Christ, Fellowship Bible Church, we're fasting and we're praying. We're going to send you a prayer guide this week through your email. So if you're not on our email list, you can go to our website and you can get connected there. If you're not able to do Friday, that's okay. Pick another day. I want to encourage you to engage this. If you've never fasted before or fasting is a regular part of your spiritual life, these are great times to fast. Think about this. To respond to the brokenness around us and the brokenness in us. 
to put ourselves in a posture of dependence as we seek wisdom and guidance and protection for the new year. What a great time to do this. I can't wait to do this together. And I want to call us as a body to be a part of this. Let me pray for you and then we're going to worship. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this invitation. And I pray, Father, that our motivation would not be out of guilt. It would not be to check a box. It would not be because everybody else is doing it. But you would draw out of us this desire to know our Father in heaven more, to know ourselves more so that we'll be aware of our need for him, to to cry out with the hunger and thirst that's in our deepest inner being for help, for you, for your life that is in us. And we pray, Father, that this would be a moment in our church's history that you would see fit to move in our midst. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.